Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. What is the definition of that? We moved away from addressing spirituality as part of the person and have seen that that is not always beneficial. When we hear the word worldview, we were all kind of thinking about like a written list of like our beliefs. That's my challenge for everyone. Pretty incredible. incredible. Oh, today was my second day being able to have caffeine again. Uh, for my addictions oh, class, really? I don't remember if we talked about this last week or not. We might have talked about it in the- Yeah, you, you said you stopped. Oh, did I? Well, I'm back yeah. on, baby. <laughs> Um, is it like completely over the top, the effect it has on you now? Well, I had some Sunday morning and then I kind of felt wide awake until like 2 a.m. Now I was playing video games <sighs> later than usual, so that could be it. But yeah, it, it, today I had, I probably went from zero ounces of caffeine a day to about 32 today. So I, I feel a little bit more energetic, but I still want to limit how much I have. I don't know. I'm worried about the, uh, I'm worried about see, seeing if I just go right back into it as hard as I was before. Um, but we'll see, right. what, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I'm going to try to not make it at home and keep it as like a treat for my Monday, Tuesday study days. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, what about you? Anything big happening over in Florida? Any uh, big Wait, exciting news? Right <laughs> Is, I guess I didn't realize we'd started. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Hurricane Ian is coming through. So uh, I we're recording this on a Monday. I had class today, but class for the rest of the week is all canceled. So. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a hurricane. Everybody at school is like freaking out, but the neighbor and the landlord who are from here, uh, are both just saying, don't worry about it. So I guess that, uh, I want to rough it out. Cause you're like, you're like in the middle of Florida, right? I'm like, uh, no. So if you cut the state in half vertically, that's like Orlando. And then if you cut the left half in half, that's where I am. So I'm like 75% of the way to the shore. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So you shouldn't have ocean water at your door, but you might have a ton of rain and wind. Yeah, pretty much. A lot of, definitely a lot of rain, which I've had here last week was like a ton of rain. And so that I'm used to, it's the wind that like, I'm a little bit concerned about, mm. but the landlord showed me one wall that is like thick, impenetrable block. So I guess if it comes down to it, I'll just hang out alongside that wall. <laughs> I couldn't spring to get you four impenetrable walls. So I just got you <laughs> one. Hopefully the wind is blowing into it and not you into it the wall yeah well apparently it wasn't um it wasn't him the guy who owned this property before mm -hmm. i guess was somewhat of like a prepper and so he made like a corner 
that was like a hurricane bunker and that's like the corner that we're talking about oh. so i guess it's cool okay i don't know interesting interesting well at least you have a corner i guess yeah yeah i'm not i'm not too worried about it in all honesty can gather the lizards and huddle for safety yeah but lizards frogs whatever's inside all right well let's uh let's get into it let's get into the old uh Hopefully school's coming along nicely. What have you what have you learned this week? I guess do you want me to, do you want me to start off? Uh yeah, why don't you go first? Cool. This week, the three chapters I had to read, which I mostly finished. I have five five pages left. Um, I read a chapter on more like spiritual competencies, things that counselors should aspire to. Uh, when it comes to this week, specifically like, like diagnose, diagnosis and treatment. So how do we diagnose spiritual condition uh, versus, well, okay, so that's one interesting thing is that they talked about how based on the counselor's use of the DRM or the di- oh, DSM, sorry, the Diagnostic Diagnosis Statistic Manual, I believe is what's called. There's going to be some people who are into counseling and are going to be so mad that I think I said that wrong. I'm sorry. I have not purchased mine yet. Um, uh, I will. I I do think that diagnosis is important, but it's essentially said depending on the counselor's perspective of diagnosis, because um, there's still kind of a debate as to whether or not you should diagnose or you shouldn't diagnose. Um, that can determine whether you diagnose pathology or like negative ways of thinking that are harming the self, or you see it as a spiritual like transition or condition. Um, For example, they give the example of you might have a client who recently had a death in their family. And so they present and you could diagnose them as having major depressive disorder um, based on their reactions, obviously I'm not going to symptoms and stuff. However, you could acknowledge the fact that they, there's a, like a long, like a longing for meaning and understanding in this period of grief. And if that's the case, you could treat it more as like a spiritual condition. Um, and then you get into the whole like realm of, okay, if you diagnose it as a spiritual condition, guess what? Insurance isn't going to cover that. So now it's an out-of-pocket treatment. Or do you diagnose it as major depression for insurance to help, but then weave in spiritual techniques to address that sense of longing that the person has and that grasp for meeting? So it it was really interesting to hear. I kind of forget where I was even going. Oh, yeah. Then we learned some... Go ahead. I was going to say to stop there. So what is... You used the word pathology a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the definition of that? Because I know what it I know what it is, but how would you define it? Well, let me um, talk slowly. <laughs> uh, just for no specific reason. Hold on. Pathology. Pathology is the science of the causes and effects of diseases, especially the branch of medicine that deals with a laboratory examination of examples of body tissue. Um, Mm. Duh. Uh, But I think, I think it would be more in my, it's essentially how you classify something as being like how you study. Okay. So pathology versus spirituality. 
spirituality can have effects on the body, but it isn't understood as a body sensation, I guess you could say. Like you can't say that the existential nature of like an understanding of a relationship of God and the person is a physical man, like a physically measurable thing. Like you can, you can of course make that stretch, but, but it's kind of its own separate thing. Whereas referring to like mental health or something else as pathology kind of, I feel like grounds it a bit more where it's like, okay, we're going to understand the self and the way of thinking through clinical terms. So like pathology is, this is a major depressive episode. Like you have the symptoms of like loss of appetite and you're retreating from people. And like you have these symptoms that we can look at in the, in this manual and say, this is what you have versus the spiritual aspect of it of saying, Hey, you are in a sense of questioning, like questioning your belief system and questioning the goodness of God and justice in the world. And these things are leading to depression, but you don't have this diagnosis of a depressive disorder. Because to give someone that diagnosis means that that kind of sticks with them. It, it seems much more permanent. Um, I guess the way I, I guess I'll explain it this way. Um, like it's, it's the similar as if you would go up to like, like I'm going to use our mom, for example, but I guess you could say any mom, there's that stereotype of like, oh, mom, I'm feeling sick. Hey, just go like sit on the toilet for a little bit. Like that's, that's treating, you could, you could get into like, oh, tell me about your symptoms. Oh, you know what? You have an upset stomach or you know what? Oh, Hey, maybe you're sick, but when you treat it the other way, you can kind of bounce back sometimes a little bit more from something minor versus like classifying something as being more major. And then it's hard to step back from that if it's not true. But also diagnosis is obviously important because sometimes people do need the diagnosis and that's the language of the field. And sometimes you can't get people the care they need unless you can address the actual diagnosed nature of it. So it's, it's kind of a big up in the air thing. I think from what I can remember from well, other classes, it's a very debated thing right now as to whether or not like you diagnose or you don't diagnose when to diagnose is diagnosis like ethical. Uh, it's all over the place. And so a pathology is, uh, I mean, there are sort of, you know, a list of pathologies and they're diagnosed by the symptoms. So like, any one particular pathology, when you say that word, and I'm kind of stumbling around this, but it's not describing like one particular phenomena, like a physical reaction happening in the body. The pathology is this set of symptoms and this set of behaviors kind of lumped together and given a name, right? Uh, yes, yes. So like pathology would be the act of being able to define and categorize the symptoms. Yeah. So how about, and I don't know if you guys have talked about this at, at this point, but like, what about self Oh, also, I'll point this out too. I should have used the phrase psychopathology because that's specific to my field. Okay. Whereas pathology would be more, okay. obviously, traditional medical field. 
Gotcha. So, but yeah, have you guys talked about like self-diagnosing? Cause you're talking about, you know, uh, where is the line that somebody's crossed where you would diagnose them with a psychopathology or short of that line, you know, you may consider it a spiritual condition or affliction or something, but from the individual's point of view, I feel like that's a huge thing is like everybody talks about, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm bipolar. I'm this, I'm that. Yeah. I watched a 45 minute um, YouTube video and I learned that, you know, I have all of these different things. Yeah. Um, we actually haven't talked about that yet, but I guess what I can talk about when it comes to that sort of topic is we learned today. So this is obviously in my spirituality class. Um, also I, I want to clarify for anyone listening. who's like, Oh wow, this guy, rich is way too into spiritual stuff. What about medicine and all that kind of stuff? I love the spiritual nature of therapy and I hope to use it a ton, but I'm not going to be like telling all my clients, Hey, you're not dealing with a medical thing right now. Like you just need to like go home and pray more. It, it's, it's kind of like a both and you have to, that's part of ethical practice is being able to discern between the two, which brings me back to answering your question. Um, this, they gave a kind of case example of a client who came into therapy and she wanted to, she was presenting because she was always very stressed. She'd recently been through a divorce and she felt that like the world was out together. She could never do anything right. She was very dissatisfied in life. And she wanted to address specifically in therapy, the spiritual idea and nature of reincarnation and past lives. That's what she wanted to address. The counselor mm -hmm. thought that that would be unhealthy because she was using spirituality as a essentially an escape mechanism to avoid having to be aware of what was happening in the present moment. She was avoiding like the present by wanting to go into the past. Um, and you know, this could happen. They also said that like prayer, I, I read a chapter on prayer today, how prayer is supposed to pull us into this communion with God and this understanding of self and understanding of, of, you know, things going around us, but in an unhealthy way, like there's a healthy side of like, Hey, I'm not in control of this. Like I'm going to, I'm going to put God into control, but there's an unhealthy side, very similar where you can say like, hey, this is out of my hands. I can't control it at all. And you essentially use that to defer responsibility off of yourself and on to God in an unhealthy way. Um, so this client was doing something similar where they were deferring what was happening in the present and trying to find an explanation for it in the past. And the counselor had to, obviously they worked within the client's spiritual goal. They didn't, they didn't, they kept spiritual language as part of the process, but they said to the client, Hey, we're going to, before we can explore the past, let's step back to the past. Let's take a look at what's happening in this present life so we can gain understanding of themes and what's happening so that we can then step into the past, like past lives with more understanding. And then through doing that, they worked with like some exposure therapy, which essentially helped them deal with stressful situations in the present. They dealt with some like, the idea of like a, like a, oh man, I don't know how to pronounce it. S-C-H-E-M-A. Do you know how to pronounce it? 
English major looking at you schema 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 yeah um or like an understanding of life like a playbook for life so they did a little bit of like restructuring of that and the client eventually went after several sessions and said I'd like to keep going down this path of understanding the present before we get into the past because the counselor was able to accurately determine that like hey you're trying to dodge this essentially, which is the self-diagnosis. You're self-diagnosing that the problem isn't now. It's not something that's going on right now. It's not an emotional response to what's going on now. It's not a way you're dealing with situations now. It's you're self-diagnosing the problem must be in the past. And the counselor helped them re readdress that while also using the client's goal and the client's wishes versus just saying, hey, you're stupid. It's not anything but the past. Or hey, you know, I maybe I believe in reincarnation, but we're not going to do it that way. They very skillfully were able to walk with the client, but then lovingly point them towards more traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, which is much, you know, much more medically diagnosable and gave them techniques that were essentially a marriage of the two to help them past their self-diagnosis and into a place where they could help the clients have more awareness of what truly was going on outside of the self-diagnosis. Doesn't answer, yeah. but it talked on the topic. Yeah, well, we talked in one writing class because I'm at a Christian university. We were talking about uh, like incorporating faith into humanities mm -hmm. or i guess incorporating your faith into the humanities when you say the uh, humanities what do you mean so like you know um language music painting the arts gotcha. loosely so uh we were talking about like worldview and really the first day of this the professor kind of like asked us what worldview means um, and we were all thinking like a list of, so when we hear the word worldview, we were all kind of thinking about like a written list of like our beliefs and like, I believe this politically, I believe that socially, I believe that religiously. And we kind of didn't like that. Mm. Like it felt very much like something in the head and not in the heart. Mm -hmm. uh, and so anyway, the word we used for the rest of the course was reality. Hmm. Like someone's faith or someone's worldview or someone's beliefs are their reality. And it might not be the, it might not be the facts, you know, if you're like bent some certain way or like towards some certain conspiracy or some certain, you know, whatever, if you're in a cult, like there are people who have realities that aren't the reality. But all of that being said, it's like, it's not just a thing in the head. It's like every fiber of your being kind of gets wrapped up in, like you live out of your reality. And so anyway, that's what that makes me think of is like, as a counselor, you could sit back and say like, oh, well, I don't believe in reincarnation or I don't believe in this or that or whatever. But it's like that person yes. does. And for all intents and purposes, that is what every muscle in them is is moving yeah. toward so is that kind of the no, same yeah. thing um what i learned about kind of two weeks ago it they gave this like 
these four frameworks for talking about the divine and the sacred with clients. And obviously it's like when you give four frameworks in this type of, it was like, Hey, these two are good. These two are bad. And the first one, one was like an exclusionist, an exclusionist, exclusionist guys. I promise the thing I hate about being in a master's program is how I say this with a lot of self-love, how smart and how stupid I am <laughs> as I'm over here, like stumbling over words. Um, the exclusionist approach is essentially the counselor, maybe themselves, because actually several times this book has referenced how um, even though 80 percent of America would say that they are spiritual or religious in some degree, uh, counselors and people in like the psychological fields are way less religious and spiritual than like the rest of the population. So the exclusionist approach is mm. the counselor might not have religious or spiritual practices. And so they will avoid those conversations because they're not comfortable or because they don't see value in it with their clients. Um, the rejectionist approach is maybe the counselor has beliefs or maybe the counselor has no beliefs, but when the client brings it up, like brings up, like you said, their reality, the counselor is very anti and wants to shut down or change the conversation, which if you put yourself in the shoes of the client, this is a place where you're coming to be vulnerable and talk things through. And you're also, you're having your counselor, actively kind of work against that that's a huge damage to the therapeutic mm -hmm. like therapeutic alliance um uh then the other two man i forget exactly the wording of them but the third one's essentially you are allowing and accepting of the of the client's spirituality and you're able to talk about it you're able to address it however you might be too permissive of it to the point where you're overlooking psychopathology or unhealthy things and you're explaining them away as spiritual experiences um and the final one is you are able you are you have an awareness of your own spiritual and religious background um and you have a comfort in that with while also being able to accept the client's unique views um and you are also able to address things when they need to be addressed, but use the client's language and help them explore their own beliefs without needing to defend your own or attack theirs or totally permit everything. Um, so I think going on to what you said about like being aware of someone's like reality, like that's a huge, 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 huge part of, I think, incorporating like spirituality, but even just counseling in general, shoot, it, it probably should be just a good part of being another human. <laughs> is like being aware of the fact that like your reality isn't the reality. And obviously, like you said, there's, there's instances where people are like believing in things that are actually detrimental to society. Um, but I think that, oh man, here comes an opinion alert. Here comes an opinion alert. This is just opinion. I did not <laughs> learn this in school. Um, but it almost seems like In the world today, there is so much villainizing of other people's points of view that it's hard to understand when something is another point of view and when something is detrimental to the greater society for someone to believe. Because I know 
automatically, let me address it. If you're listening to this, you're probably thinking political things right now. And that's very understandable. Like there's so much villainizing talk. It's hard to understand. Hey, when can I learn from the other point? When can I learn from the other, like the other side? And when do I have to take up arms against them? And I think that if we're not careful, that can boil down into the smaller, like into our smaller communities, into our smaller workplaces. And for me specifically, it can boil down into the counseling process. How am I going to respond when I'm sitting with a client who is very different than me? Like, am I going to be defensive? Because they'll sense that. Am I going to be dismissive and avoid things they want to talk about because they'll sense that. And I might, I might lose a client. They might say, Hey, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this. And they just never come back or even worse. They might stay. And I do active harm by poking holes in their reality. Um, and that was even something that was talked about in diagnosis and treatment is like huge spiritual changes. Often, are precursors to actual like psychopathology and like damaging ways of thinking and anxiety and depression. Like those, those changes are so fundamental. That shaking of the reality is so fundamental that it can oftentimes be a precursor to worse harm happening um, in the person. So I don't know. It's interesting. There it is. There's the interesting, yeah, there's the thing. Interesting was said once by rich <laughs> We're 25 minutes in, and I've only said it once. We need like a sound drop. <laughs> a sound drop for interesting and a sound drop for opinion alert. <laughs> um, I was going to say, though, you mentioned like, what was it? Like the therapeutic Alliance. council or something? Mm -hmm. Alliance. Is that like the Hippocratic Oath or yeah, something like that? I think like it's it? similar to that. It's essentially the understanding that for therapy to occur, um, it needs that you need to have a strong bond built between you and the client. Um, like obviously they're coming in with the understanding of this is a place where I can be more vulnerable, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be fully vulnerable. Like I went to therapy for a little bit. I want to go back again, actually. Um, ironically enough, when I went in for therapy, I, I might've mentioned this to you. I know I mentioned it to some other people, but I had a hard time feeling a strong therapeutic alliance with my counselor because oftentimes I would go in and want to share something and my counselor would just be monologuing and I'd, I'd leave session oh, feeling weird. like I didn't get to, I I'm coming to therapy because I feel like I have no one I can talk to about these things. And yet in therapy, I can't talk about the things because we yeah. keep going off on these tangents. And then I found myself like wanting to say things that the counselor wanted to hear. And that's an example of like a bad therapeutic alliance. Like I began to instantly say, here's where I feel like I can be vulnerable and can't be vulnerable. And in doing so, I limited what I would talk about in therapy. And that's like, that's a no bueno. Um, like, the, a strong therapeutic alliance is a buildup of trust that leads to a buildup of vulnerability, which leads to like, it's kind of like an upward swing. Like it, it builds exponentially. You build trust. You let the person know you're heard. You let the person know that 
like, I know it's kind of a joke right now to be like, you're so valid, you're so seen. Um, but it's true. Like when those clients feel like they're being taken seriously and being valued, they will then open the door a little bit more, which allows them to work on something deeper, which then makes the client feel even safer going into more. And it kind of just builds exponentially on itself. Yeah. Like, hey, if you're, yeah. if you're at work We're, or if you're at school or if you're wherever and you feel like no one wants to be deep with you, you have a, you have a very weak therapeutic alliance with them. Like, so slow down a little bit. Truly listen. Practice some reflections. When the person... So you can have it with others, not just... It's not just like a from a medical professional to a patient yeah, or a client. Yeah, I mean, this isn't what I learned this week. But when I was in my like basics theories classes... We talked about the idea of reflections, how when you're listening to someone, you want to either reflect content, which is like a level one reflection. I'm using, it's not necessarily a level one reflection. I'm just using this to help explain it. Um, content might be like a very basic reflection, like someone, oh, let me think of an example. Um, okay, I'm gonna say this phrase. Um, and the way I say it is maybe important. At a coffee shop today, I ran into an old friend of mine, and it was good to see them. A reflection of content is, oh, you ran into a friend you haven't seen for a while. That must have been nice. Or maybe, no, don't even say that. Just, oh, you ran into a friend you haven't seen in a while, and you leave it there. You don't put any sort of, that must have been nice. You just reflect, this is what I heard you say. And then they might say, yeah, I haven't seen them for a while. And, you know, it kind of made me feel they, they take it from there. By feeling heard, they'll take the conversation deeper. That's a reflection of content. A reflection of feeling might mm -hmm. acknowledge, you know what, when you talked about that, you didn't seem happy to see this friend. You didn't necessarily, you seemed more sad, but I'd say specifically, you, you, there was almost like a remorse. Like it was making you think of something that you didn't want to think about. So that counselor might say, you don't seem necessarily happy about seeing that friend. Once again, attached an emotion to it, but didn't attach like a reason to it. And that's where if you're ever having a conversation and you're talking with someone and you say something, they go, oh yes, exactly. That's what you're looking for with a good reflection of feeling. And that client might say, yeah, like, I don't know. It, it made me think a lot about where I am in life and how they're so much farther ahead than me. Boom. That's like gold mine. By reflecting feeling, they're now like, by showing, hey, I'm pacing with you, you're able to skip farther along into the conversation. Um, then there's like, there's open questions and closed questions and all these other things. But I would say when it comes to like the therapeutic alliance with other people, um, I think if you're able to even in conversation, when you're listening to someone, if you're able to reflect content and reflect feelings, you'll find conversations opening up way more. Um, so, hey, that's that's my challenge for everyone. Practice some reflections of content, and some <laughs> reflections of feelings this week. You probably didn't think you were going to well, get homework listening to this podcast, but OK, I'm done. <laughs> There's there's the thing, too. I've heard this and I don't know if this falls in any of those categories that you just said, but if you want somebody to say more, 
you just repeat the last two words. Mm. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? So like say say anything to me. Say something. Like about my day. Uh yeah. Man, I really thought I'd be able to get more done today. More done today. Uh like that's that's like it's it's like a hack or whatever that I heard from some like former uh intelligence agent or something like that. But that's like it kind of stops short of what you were saying, like a reflection of content. There there are some examples and there are times that I've mm-hmm. used it where it would fall more into like a reflection of what yeah. they're saying. But yeah, as it goes, it's pretty much just like you take whatever the last two words they said are and that kind of gives them permission. Like they stopped speaking because they thought that that is how much was appropriate for them mm-hmm. to say. But the same thing by you just mirroring the last two words that they say that like gives them permission to continue often to now say what they were holding yes. back on. Yep. Exactly. Right. Yep. And like, there's oh, go ahead. Yeah, I need, well, I was going to say, this reminds me a lot. I need one of these weeks to bring in uh, something I'm learning from history of science mm-hmm. and the human. Cause I, I've been kind of avoiding it because it's so, much history and i'm so like kind of deficient in that area (laughs) i'm history deficient this class is very (laughs) well yeah this class is like very kind of philosophical uh because we're talking about the progression of science through human Mm. history so it starts with like plato and aristotle Mm. uh but then we moved forward into like hippocrates and kind of the time period where there is like sort of, uh, I guess, professional knowledge. Like schools almost. It, it starts with more like institutions. Yeah. Yes, like schools of thought. And then now we're getting to the point in the class where it is like universities and actual like institutionalized uh, areas mm-hmm. of learning. And so anyway, like with the Hippocratic Oath, it really is like a reminder. So many things we're learning about in this class are a reminder of like how much of our world is just like a handshake agreement. Oh, yeah. And it requires, on the one hand, it requires like moral people, but even on the other hand, like we're learning about all of these uh, remedies and ways that they, ways that these people kind of had the, the cosmos ordered. And ways that they thought, you know, like the four humors. Are you familiar oh, with that? The four humors. That I've work heard in the body. it, but I couldn't, I couldn't repeat what any of them were. Yeah. And neither could I, which is my issue, but it's like, there's the four elements and the earth, uh, like earth and water and fire and another Heart. one. And that corresponds with like the, f- <laughs> no, maybe? I think it's, it's probably no, earth, fire, probably not earth, fire, wind, water. Come on. I've watched avatar. The four, the say four that, nations lived together in peace wrong. until everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. All of our, all of our well, aunts and uncles, uncles that are listening to this right now are like, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> uh, that's like not that far away from what. So these physicians back then had the four humors, which is like blood, phlegm, uh, bile. Oh, is this and it? Blood. There's blood. Another one. Yellow bile, black bile, 
and phlegm. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so they categorized, you know, so many uh, different ailments and stuff. Like it meant that one of your humors was off or there was also like heat and cold. Like you could be too, your body was too hot or too cold. And so anyway, my point is that actually a decent amount of their medicine worked. Like they had a completely, uh, what we would now consider like a wrong or like an archaic view of how, of science, of how anything worked. And yet like these people were physicians because they kind of did have a track record of helping, Mm. you know? And so then you think about that and you think about like, well, I bet our world isn't that much different. You know, like obviously we're way more advanced. We have way more knowledge than we did, but there are things that we can't cure. And, you know, you get into that whole headspace where it's like, you know, maybe a hundred years from now, we'll look back on this time and what the heck were we doing? How big of idiots we were. Yeah, exactly. That's literally what that's not really like my so much of this spirituality class is talking about how we moved away from addressing spirituality as part of the person and have seen that that is not always beneficial. Dude, I feel like the counseling profession, it's such an interesting time to be in it because it's like currently redefining itself. And like as you're learning about it, it's like, hey, here's how everything is changing. Yeah, I would want maybe next week I'll bring or at some point I'll bring uh, this chapter from Mere Christianity. So I'm in that other class about C.S. Lewis, his life and influence, or I think that's what it's called. Uh, And we read through Mere Christianity. There's this one chapter that we weren't assigned, but I read it because it was short. And I figured we might talk about it at some point. Well, it was it was seriously like a page and a half, but uh, it's about like I think it was called like Christianity and psychoanalysis or something oh, like that. Sure. And it's really interesting because C.S. Lewis was writing in you know like the forties or so, the fifties, and he sometimes mentions like this new guy Freud coming on the scene. And you can tell that he's like writing about developments as they Mm -hmm. happen. And his takes, like to me, I'm like a complete layman when it comes to psychology. To me, his takes seem like actually not that bad. You know, like you can imagine a world where like psychoanalysis is like this brand new thing. And like some random Christian writer has just like these cringe things to say about it, but it really wasn't like that. Like such cringe. (laughs) Sorry. I keep interrupting. Continue on. (laughs) Um, well, I think I was just going to say that, like, I'd be curious to get your take on it because kind of the language he had is that he, he kind of said, I guess he's sort of, foresaw the tension that would develop or maybe i'm reading too much into it he kind of writes about like religion gives you a reason to want to be good and psychoanalysis gives definition to reasons why you're being bad and so he was kind of already saying back then like this stuff is great like do it read it it's all good but he was saying like, none of that is an excuse to not try to be better, which kind of takes this all the way back to the beginning of like, 
you know, self-diagnosing. people self-diagnosing and people like clutching on to kind of mental illness, not as like a descriptive thing, but almost like a prescriptive thing of like, well, this is what I have. And so therefore I'm blank. And that's not even so bad, except for in the case of like, uh, self-diagnosis where it's like no actually you might not even have that thing that's where you get into more dangerous territory i guess i'm trying to find where i was actually reading the the textbook oh here it is right here um i'll i'll just literally read this um so within the realm of spirituality and mental health wilbur discussed the tendency to make errors of reductionism and elevationism Concepts that have great relevance for the counselor diagnosing a client's disorder. In short, over-focusing on the diagnostic, diagnostic process without an appreciation for the transformational spiritual experiences may lead a counselor to, pathologi- to, path- to pathologize genuine spiritual experiences or say, hey, this, this spiritual experience is an actual symptom of a medical disorder. Such was the tendency, for example, of Freud who described the experiences of mystics as infantile narcissism. However, an imbalance in which an appreciation for mental health issues is not in line with beliefs on the transformational experiences may lead one to elevate pathology to the level of transformational or mystical spiritual experiences, where you're saying, hey, like, this is probably a bit drastic, but maybe someone has, like, lesions in their brain and bad blood flow and it's leading to them having these like visions or these like extreme like religious and spiritual encounters where they're like you know this this is where a lot of people who have said like hey i am god or i am the you know next incarnation of christ sometimes this can come from actual like medical issues but if you put too much emphasis on the effect of spiritual transformation on the person, you might say, Hey, that's perfectly, you're just going through a spiritual transformation stage. I don't need to diagnose this at all. Like this, this once again, goes back to the self-diagnosis and stuff like that. Um, I think on that same page, it was talking about how a woman comes in, she recently lost her mother And she's been having these vivid dreams and visions where she's talking to her mother. Um, One might say this is a medical disorder. Uh, That type of dream or hallucination is a symptom of major depressive disorder. And we should start medicating you or treating that. And another might say, hey, you obviously are going through an extreme amount of grief caused by losing your mother. like." This might be a spiritual transformation issue. These, you know, maybe this isn't a medical diagnosis. So it, 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 you can't be, you can't do this or this. You have to be like kind of a, a both and when it comes to it, I feel like. Right. <laughs> but that's about 43 minutes of me talking about my class. So. <laughs> well. No, that's good because I don't know. I'm a after last week when we got started talking, like the hard thing is I shared whatever I was learning about last week. And then that like naturally Mm -hmm. brings up questions and none of the questions like I realized how out of depth I was. So 
This week I brought oh. some notes that I'm actually gonna like try to read along. Yeah. Uh, this is such I'm our going personality. To, like you're over here. Like okay, so maybe gonna, I'll bring this to next podcast. And I'm like, am I supposed to bring things to share about? I gotta just sit here and go, huh? What do I feel in this moment? True. It's the it's the dynamic. This is the the magic. But so I okay. So I'm going back to my history okay. of the English language course. So uh, right now we're talking about old English as opposed to Middle English or Wait, modern. What would English. King James be considered? Uh, King James. I'm going to say that oh, that's okay. like middle English. Because uh, old English has the Wycliffe. Are you familiar with no that? No idea. So, yeah, when we when we like compare. Uh, actually, yes, yeah, so this is a thing that we do. And it's not just because this one's not because it's a Christian university. Uh, we will compare like the Wycliffe Bible with like the King James, oh. with like a more modern translation. Because obviously the Bible is something that has been like reliably, you know, written and translated. Yeah, it's one of the most history, translated so things it, in existence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very like enlightening in terms of comparing these. But anyway, all of that to say, when you read the Wycliffe, I hope I'm saying that right. It might be why something else. But regardless, that's the one where like half of the characters Oh, we don't use today. So like they have a character for like the TH sound, like th, th if you mm-hmm. uh, verbalize it. Like one character. And so like a letter that represented that or something you'd put over the TH. Yes. To represent making that sound. No, it's like practically a different oh, shoot. Uh, alphabet. When you go that far back. Yes. Maybe like. 50 50 of like characters you would recognize versus ones you wouldn't. But so anyway, we're studying, uh, we're not even studying the old English language yet. It's been kind of like the history of how we got to there. And again, history is kind of where I struggle, but there was a language that was spoken throughout the European continent, which I guess is called Indo European. Okay. Uh, as in, you know, India and Europe. And that spread over the continent and Wait, it evolves over time. Like and then it India eventually... and European. Oh, wow. I think so. Yeah. You know, what? what's the Indian yeah. language called? Is that Hindi? Um, uh, or is it, isn't there is it like Tamil? Sanskrit? Sanskrit. Hold on, let me do a Google. Honestly, Hindi. this is one of those it's ones. Hindi. This is or where least, I'm like, that's what Hindi's a language. Well, okay. okay. So I was, I was hanging out with, I'm not going to say their name, but there's um, a friend of mine who's Indian. Um, and they had friends over from India and they invited me over to like to dinner. Yeah. Oh, so you that's were right. Me about I that. said, I asked you to come to India with me in a year. Um, but they had talked about how <sighs> Hindi is one of the oldest languages in existence. So that's just really cool to hear you say that it's like a Indo-European like European language, like how it must have traveled over. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted. 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm like completely guessing here, but if they're saying that, I would presume that either Hindi came from this like proto language, or maybe Hindi was a dialect mm. of it all the way back then, and this one sort of stream of it ex- like okay. carried on. Um, but in the case of what would become English, so there was this Indo-European language, which eventually became uh, proto-Germanic. Mm-hmm is what we call it uh meaning obviously like germany and now this is probably also like pre-sacking of rome pre-sacking of rome uh yeah there's some overlap there so actually actually yeah that that leads me sort of into it so any history people i might get some of this sort of wrong but so there's this proto-germanic language and those people start migrating over to uh, mm-hmm. the island to, you know, I guess it, we yeah. would call it Britain at that point. Um, and so they're migrating. There's some debate over the degree to which it was an invasion. So a lot of times the word invasion is used and it's like kind of accurate unless you think of an invasion as like, one military action so like there was never a point where it was like germany as it were was like hey we're gonna go take over these islands it was more so a lot of people moving over there and when they got there particular people probably got violent against the people in the specific area but it wasn't like a war or anything yeah, organized like in survival. that sense i um, guess like It'd be relatable to like, yeah, I mean, like the settling of America. Like it wasn't necessarily a war per se, uh, it was just people moving into a place where other people existed. And then it wasn't like people were like, we're going to invade this landmass. It was, hey, we live here now. And then as time went on, I guess a, maybe a maybe a quicker version yeah, of that. Yeah, I know. Because obviously the expanse and manifest destiny and all of that. But this is just like a quicker version of that over maybe the course of like 20, 50, 100 years. And what was different, too, is that there weren't at this point like strong, centralized True. governments. And so that's what's different about the America thing is like we had countries sending explorers like sanctioning this, whereas Most this back then was just like the way that. Exactly. I, I think yeah, also, that's what it was. And sorry. so. I think part of Ireland's origin story, I watched this on like a YouTube video once, mentions something about people coming by boat and fighting. I don't, maybe it was the elves or essentially this like race of beings that existed on the island already. And so like, even like in their origin story, their mythological origin story, there's this idea of like people came to the island and fought the people who lived there, which is interesting to hear you say that in a yeah. story about language. Anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. Well, no, that's that's it. And the exact timeline I'm a little iffy on, but the Germanic people are going over and landing on the island. There are already celtic people there who are then jumping over uh to the other island 
And then at some point they come back. And then in the fourth century, uh, or I think, I, I mean, I guess it would be the fourth century BC. That's when Rome mm-hmm. comes and they occupy Britain. But again, there's debate as to how strong of a force they actually had, because when Rome disappears from the island, it doesn't change that much in terms of their government records we have and also records of yeah. how they spoke the language. Whereas in other places where Rome was stronger, there was like a precipitous fall, like something yeah. happened, we can tell. Uh, and so anyway, what would become English is this mixture of all of these different languages, but it does mainly derive from uh, also the language mm. that would become German. And so the one of the interesting things we learned or I guess it was just sort of pointed out to us is that when you think of like the evolution of language, which is always happening, language is always changing. It's always, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's constant, it's shifting. Sand. Yeah. It's, it's always moving. But when you think about the word evolution specifically, um, language doesn't necessarily evolve in like a bunch of straight lines. Hmm. And so it's not like a family tree where you can say, you know, these two people begat Mm -hmm. these children and these children begat, you know, it's kind of more like just a big salad of like, well, these people sort of invaded them and their language influenced them. But also while they were ruling over the island, they wanted to be able to communicate. And so they adopted characteristics of those people over there, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I'm looking, (laughs) this is where I'm looking at my notes here. So one real interesting thing, this was like, this is probably middle English, but like, I know during like the Viking invasions, there was like an, there was another evolution of the English language because like there was like the Dane law, we're essentially, hey, Vikings, you're sure killing a lot of us. What if you just live here and stop, you know, killing and raping and pillaging us? Um, so now you have these people coming in and they're being like neighbors. Um, and there's they're forming these own little like communities. And there was this blending of the language where like you've got phrases from the Danes and phrases from the you know natives to the island who are like mixing their language and it became kind of this like higher lower way of speaking things like for example mutton mutton is lamb but the like the i guess you would would you say native english population would say uh mutton i think i might have this backwards and the other the danes would say like lamb or vice versa and that's where there's so much like I think I think cloth and leather is another one, but the the languages end up just kind of merging over time. Yeah, and no one and agreed exactly on it. it. No one shook and hands English and said, "Like is, this is how the language works." Right, and that's exactly it. Because the Viking thing is a great example. Like they're not thinking about it that consciously. Of like, you know, they're not they're not language experts, so they're not going to make these people who they're like uh, domineering over speak exact 
perfect grammar as they know it. It's like they're going to influence each other and they're going to share words. And so like in English, one example I can think of is like any word that ends in the letter I is a borrowed word. Because in English, we don't. I'm using like quotes right now. We don't end words with the letter I, but there are all sorts, you know, I'm trying, so to, yeah, I'm trying to think of an example comes to mind right now, but like Helsinki. So it's a lot of like uh, more like Nordic stuff. Um, Helsinki, that's the name of a city. So it's maybe not the greatest example. But like if you go to Ikea, a lot of the oh, stuff will end yeah. in the letter I. Like that's kind of what I'm talking about. And we have that influence in our language, but we also have it from all sorts of different regions. And so one example. Well, well, let me let me jump to this. So there's something called, and I might be pronouncing this totally awfully, uh, Sturdivant's okay. paradox. Sturdivant. We'll go with that. So the paradox is that change in language is natural and it's regular and it's going to occur, but it creates irregularity. Okay. And so the more that language evolves, you know, we can say like, oh, well, language is arbitrary to begin with. It's always going to change. So why fight it? Why fight progress? That sort of thing. But the problem is this paradox, which is that even though it is completely natural for it to change, it messes mm. with the rules. And that's why. If you remember learning English as a kid or learning to read and write, I should say, that's why there are so many things where like second and third grade teachers are forced to just say like, oh, well, this is an exception, you know, and even crazy stuff like I before E except after C, except that only works half the time. Like there's all of this stuff that we chalk up to English is quote unquote a hard language. But the further back in history you go, there are actually very clear rules. And what happens is things change over time and that like just throws a wrench in it. So is it almost so you're saying it throws a wrench in it because as the language changes, which is natural, the structure of how to teach the language changes. So as the language or changes, or I guess the structure becomes insufficient become to teach. Uh, more so that the people who speak the language morph and change it as in, you know, we, we say things like gotcha, or I don't if you're know from the Midwest. And don't you know? Like, it's not hard to, <laughs> well, it's like not hard to imagine in 30 years, those being like words mm. in the dictionary. But the problem with that is. Okay, so yeah, let's use that example. Like, I don't know. Um, that means I don't know. And so now we spell it I-D-U-N-N-O. And you're like, okay, well, what's so wrong with that? Everybody knows what it means. We recognize it. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're probably right. So we put don't know in the dictionary. Well, what mm. part of speech is that? Well... It's probably a verb because it's the action that would make sense, knowing. right? I don't know. It's the act 
Yeah, exactly. It's the action of being unclear about something. So, so far, all of this is perfectly good and fine until this. Okay, well, if it's a verb, is there an (laughs) S form? Is there an ED form? You know, can you be I denoing? Can you say I I have denoing? And so all of that, (laughs) which is really ridiculous when you think about it, but that's the point that the public doesn't think about. And so the public is like, give us, I don't know, you know, like we all use it. Who cares? We all know what's going on. And, and I agree with that. But when we're teaching kids English in 30 years, their first grade teacher is going to have to say, oh, well, that's an exception. And then gotcha. Oh, gotcha is an exception. Do we eventually just add a new classification of word that is just slang or something like that, where it's like. A new way of classifying these words? Well, yeah, and I know, I know that's like a natural thought, but that's only thinking about the lexicon, which Mm -hmm. is the vocabulary. So making deno a word is perfectly well and good, but it messes up the conventions Mm. of the language. And so, like, let me give you another example. a lot of people aren't aware that there is a form of, of verbs, which is the EN uh, form. So verbs, there's like five forms. Traditionally, there's the base. So let me, let me pick a word. Um, go, I guess. Uh, the base form is go. Because then, Gosh, you, have, actually, then you have a, went. See, this is a bad. This is, uh, right, uh, exactly. Let's do cook. Um, Yeah, that's that's a good one. Actually, that's a great one. So there's cook, then there's the S form, which is cooks, he, she cooks. There's the ED form, I cooked, past tense. There is uh, the ING, which is Mm -hmm. I am cooking. And then this is the one that we've somewhat lost, like 50%, which is the EN form, which is I have cooking. (laughs) And so even when you say it, like that's actually a really good way to kind of like imitate old English or, or middle English. Current, if you don't know how it's just or like current Southern EN. Well, that too. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of just like conflated the ED form with the EN form. Um, and so you don't say I have cooking before you say, yeah, I when have would cooked you, when before. would you have used cooking? Um, but there it are, sounds like, I have cooked and I have cooking are the same. Is it supposed to determine when in time yes. it occurred? Yeah, it's the, I think it's the perfect tense or perfect aspect, which, so the EN ending is always attached to the verb have. So if you say I have and then a verb, theoretically, it should end in the en form. So here's one we would know. I have written about oh. this before, or I have spoken about this before. So we do use it about half the time, but then there are other examples. I have cooking. Okay. So, so that would be, or here's so one that we do use. As the example, um, let's say, you know, 
trying to think of someone. Uh, okay, our cousin Mark. He is a chef, and every year for Thanksgiving, he like cooks that turkey where he like deep fries it. He has cooking. He has cooking some a deep fried turkey. He is efficient and done it in the past. Essentially, he has cooking. He has cooking a, a turkey. It's not that he did it once. It's that he has done it enough for it to be considered the perfect tense. He might not be, you know, well, it actually does taste really good, but the tense kind of explains a familiarity with it, a continuation of it, something that's that's part of someone's life, essentially. Well, it's the difference between the past and the present tense. So if you say, I cooked a turducken, that means 10 years ago, an action okay. happened where I did it. Whereas if you come up to me and say, hey, does anybody know how to cook? Does anybody oh, know I've how to deep fry a turkey? I say, oh, I have cooking a deep fried turkey. And that's saying that right now I am a person okay. who has okay. done it. But yeah, we if you suppose. picture it on a timeline. And that's why it's called the perfect is because you're not talking about an event that happened in the past. You're talking about right now and for all time. I have done this action roughly. So spoken, written. And so I'm trying to think of other examples. Yeah, I'm sorry. Continue on. Well, that's sort of the point is that I have a sheet of verbs with like eight, like size eight font where they're, we call them irregular verbs because we, don't uh we no longer hold to the old conventions and so the point of all of this is that language is going to change over time and that's there's no fighting that but this sturdivant's paradox is that even though it's natural for language to change over time it creates an unnatural language mm. or or actually let me use his words or her words, I actually couldn't find out who wrote about this, but their words were regular and irregular. So language change or sound change is regular, but it creates a more irregular language. And what that means is that it's going to get harder every single year for first grade teachers to teach the language. So it's kind of like how if you watch like any post-apocalyptic story, after nuclear fallout, you know that it is natural for people to mutate, but how they mutate is unpredictable and unnatural, I guess. Yeah, or maybe another example from that apocalyptic is like, you know, in that scenario, people might still abide by certain laws because they've grown up abiding by them. And it's like, hey, we can't all like just all absolutely kill each other and destroy what's left of society. So they're still going to abide by certain things. But then also civilization has blown up. And so they're not going to be abiding by other laws. And if you imagine explaining to a child why we do certain things certain ways, it's going to be impossible. Because like the situation has demanded that things have changed, but it's no longer following 
you know, like statutory law. It's kind of a mix of what we used to have combined with, you know, what we now have. Does that make sense at all? I think it makes sense as it's supposed to (laughs) in a way that it can't make sense. (laughs) So let me. Yeah, let me let me give another example of like something that has kind of followed this paradox. So a development of the German language, Germanic language, this actually I'm letting it out of my mouth, but it might not make sense to anybody. Um, There was this development where the Germanic language started to have what's called strong and weak verbs. And so let me know if this sounds familiar. Uh, What we call a weak verb, you create the past tense form by adding an uh, uh, a d okay. at the end essentially and so um that's what a lot of our verbs are i jumped i slapped i slept mm-hmm. you know we create the past tense verb by adding ed to the end of it but then there are plenty more that don't do that um what's called a strong verb is when instead of adding ed you change the vowel in the word and so this is like you know uh i write doesn't become i righted it becomes Mm -hmm. i wrote and uh what would be some others like speak and spoke i speak and spoke um i exactly i was going to say arise Mm -hmm. and arose and so there is a point in history where there were some strong verbs and some weak verbs, and it was clearly categorized, like which were which, and there was like a system to it. But as it changes over time, regular language change makes the language more irregular. And now all of those verbs, we just teach kids like, oh, well, that's irregular. Like, oh, well, that's an exception. And so... And, and what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that kids have a problem speaking the language because like our brains are incredible and like we hear it done and we just yeah, we almost soak know, it up like a sponge. So like we almost know kids how to, know do how to it speak more than we know how to explain how to do it. Yes, that's maybe a, the, a better way of like describing it is we have a better handle on it, but we're not able to pin it down. And certain languages are are more oh man, maybe is I that, even should is that get into why this right now. But like remember when you sorry, were learning, is that why slang always arises out of younger generations? Because like they have intuitively oh. more of a grasp on the changes that are happening in the language without being able to verbalize it or know that they can sense it. I mean, obviously there's just culture too and humor and young culture moves faster, but that's an interesting question. You can ask that. Um, ask, ask your professor that this week in class for me. What we do know is that any variation of a language that you speak, the mental capacity that goes on in your head, like what's firing in your brain, is like equal levels of advanced, no matter, um, no matter what version mm-hmm. of a language you're speaking. And so what I mean by that is like slang is uh, it's the same sort of thing where like, well, well, yeah, actually. So 
there are certain slang words where like you'll hear a young person use it and you know even you and i are like getting to this age where like it's not originating with us you know and so if you ask them to describe wait that thing you just said what does that mean they can't and they know exactly what it means but they'll have a hard time coming up with exactly what or like this is a good example so so many slang words essentially boil down to just meaning Mm. cool but if you ask them well why is that word you just said what makes that any different than just saying cool they can't put words to it. They know it like it in their heart. It means something different and more like evocative, but it's hard to describe what the change is. And so that's the thing is like humans, we change our language, but over time we mess up our own rules. And so if you're concerned about the rules, like there's no hope for you. And, and so sort of what I was going to say is like, you know, there's American English, there's British English, there's Australian Indian English, there's Australian, there's African American English, and all of those um in terms of what's going on in somebody's brain, like their mental faculties, they're all equally as advanced and using all parts of the brain like, you know, uh I don't know what the word would be other than equally, but if you're like some person who's like, oh, well, British English, if you're like all pretentious about it. So much more sophisticated. Yeah. In it. It's sort of like. Like you're saying it doesn't require like a, the British population's ability to speak English in the way they do does not require more of the human mental capacity than it does to speak a similar but different dialect of English in another part of the world. They both are as mentally, mentally sophisticated. I, I guess they they require the same like capabilities. Yeah. Under the hood, the same things are going on. Yes. And so, you know, somebody might disagree with me and say, like, what they would try to do is they would try to point to the rules. But the rules, uh, like the second that there are rules they're gone like the cat is sort of out of the bag and so people can be like snobby and pretentious on the grounds of like oh well, but we follow the the british english uh you know handbook and that's fine and it's not that there's nothing to be said for like following certain rules or whatever but what i'm saying is like in terms of if you do a brain scan or like in the school of linguistics, if you like dig into what's going on under the surface, it's the same thing. And the point is that uh, we can agree upon like what a language. So going just going back to that paradox, it's like we can use language and we can command it better than we can step back and remove ourselves from it and actually diagnose Man. what's going on. We need to record these episodes earlier in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's true. Like, do you remember? This is the last thing I'll say is when you were like picking a foreign language in high school Mm -hmm. and like certain languages 
you know, maybe have the reputation of being like easier versus harder. And like German, at least at our school, German was the one that was like, oh, dude, that's an easy yeah. class. Like, take that. Uh, and the German language is probably a little easier to learn, at least at the high school level. I mean, that's I'm saying that like. Excuse me, I'm saying that as somebody who took the class, like it was pretty easy. And about English, we always we give English. This is what I'm trying to say. We give English this reputation that it's really hard to learn and that it's full of irregularities. And I was student teaching uh, English as a second language. So I do have like firsthand experience of, you know, our most common verb, which is be, is the most irregular one because you have uh, be, is, are been being like it's very it's really messed up and so so the point is that uh all there's there's really it's almost like there's no such thing as an easier or harder language there's just languages that are further down the road of being transformed and the more transformation that takes place we understand it and so we don't even think about what we're unconsciously doing to our language but then in a hundred years you look backward and you say oh man like we messed this so you're saying you would address and so it's it's this weird conundrum because you addressed how we consider english to be such a difficult language but is that just because we are so as a culture um i want to say obsessed but interested in being able to categorize and explain things that i mean if we weren't doing that we wouldn't necessarily notice the change in the language or think it more sophisticated but because as a culture the western world which mostly speaks you know english or at least our portion of the western world by the fact that we categorize it can then feel more sophisticated in it because we see how the rules have changed so much and we can say, hey, my language has so many different rules and ways of speaking of it. It must be so complicated. But as you're just born and raised speaking it, it's not harder. You pick up on it just as quick. It's just the fact that we have so many rules and have broken so many rules and rewritten so many rules that it seems complicated as you try to explain it. Uh in a way, yes. So I guess what I'm getting at is our capacity for language is pretty incredible. Like when when I was taking a class on grammar and, you know, sort of like introductory linguistic type stuff, there were so many light bulb moments where I was learning what was going on kind mm-hmm. of underneath the hood, you know, and where when I was learning to read and write, you know, my teachers just kind of brushed away like, you know, oh, well, that's just weird. Or like, this is just an exception or this is this and this is that because they're teaching seven-year-olds. Like they don't have time to um, stop and pause and explain all these things. What I'm learning now is that actually in a weird way, even the stuff that's messed up and even the stuff that's irregular 
there is a rhyme and reason for it. And the point is this, I'm at 27 years old figuring out how to explain what the rhymes and the reasons are. But as a seven-year-old, you're already mm. operating in them. So it's, it's more like this. It's more like, imagine that, okay, so if you compare English to like playing piano, for example, imagine that every like six or seven-year-old could like kind of get along on the piano. And by the time you're like 15 or 16, every citizen is like a piano prodigy. But then imagine that nobody could explain, nobody could write down sheet music. That's more like a better analogy. Like we're all incredibly like adept users of language, but then because of the way that it evolves over time, it's really hard to step back and neatly describe what's going on, even though we can Which do it. Kind of circles back to what you were saying about like the four humanities in a way, like we all breathe and exist and like are present in a body that can go through hardships. And throughout time, we have explained so many times how that happens. Is it your blood, your yellow bile, your black bile, your phlegm? Um, you know, a hundred years, 200 years happens. Now it's like, oh, well, it's, you know, your, you know, levels of this, or it's your serotonin, or it's your this, or it's your that. Like that's how we currently explain it, but then it evolves even more as time goes on. But as we're learning how to explain it, we've also just been doing it from day one. Yeah, that's actually probably a much better analogy is like, in quotes, every person, just about every person, like for the sake of analogy, every person can uh, lift their arm up, but then imagine you trying to come up with the way of categorizing and describing what it means to mm. lift your arm up. Like those are two different things. I can pick something up, but when you, uh, okay, so I can pick something up. And when I do that, probably 20 different muscles in my body are moving and a kid can watch an adult do it. And then a kid will reach out and they'll pick something up, but there's no, there's no point where the adult tells the kid to move the 20 different muscles. Yeah. And then Does the kid actually sense? pushes. It's like our capacity to do it. Yeah. Like we just soak it up like a sponge. And then when you learn later in life, what all is happening to make that take place, it's just like, whoa, like that's way more complicated than you would realize. And we're like way more incredible than hmm. you would ever, ever think. Interesting. There it Interesting. is. Is that two? I don't even know. For you, for you guys, uh, for you guys counting at home. It might have been more. I haven't been keeping track. <laughs> for you guys counting at home, let us know how many that is. Um, that is just really fascinating. Uh, hearing it, hearing it all said that way. I am. <laughs> we just need to come up with a bunch of. I am for interesting. In 
I am fascinated. I am a man who... Uh... I don't know if that... I have fascinated... I have... I have been fascinated. Would it wouldn't be I, I am? Know. Oh no, because it's kind of past. It's in between. After, yeah, actually, I know the answer to what you're asking. Except that <laughs> it's just too late, so I, it's not going to come to me. It's it's what nine nine uh, nine forty seven, and we're already an hour and a half into this episode. Um, that is my problem with this: is like everything that we bring up becomes like a leading question for like, Oh, tell me more about that. And then it's like, Oh, well, no, that's kind of the <laughs> limits of, I learned this this week. So we're kind of like, we're, we've kind of set something up where every week we're just going to like, how little we know kind of what we don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Hey everyone. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, we host this episode and all of our episodes over at our Substack, coming along nicely. And Tim also does some writing over there as well. It, I'm a little biased, but it's pretty great. You can find him at as it were or at nicely.substack.com. We'll see you guys in the next one.